You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. When we read the New Testament, its epistles and narratives and apocalyptic visions give a vivid picture of life, the world, and a cosmic mission. But ancient Christians, just as Christians in our own moment, also lived day-to-day in towns and cities, and careful attention to the ways early Christians related to those communities stands to offer its own rewards. John S. Kloppenborg's 2019 book, Christ's Associations, attends to the bylaws and the alba and the other kinds of epigraphic artifacts of the ancient world, and brings those to bear on early Christian occasional letters to offer some richness to the world that we imagine when we read 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Kloppenborg to the show to talk about some of his work, and uh, I thank you for coming on board, John. Thanks for the opportunity to do this. I want to start our talk with the book's last sentence. Uh, as this book wraps up, you express hope that you've provided some, quote, useful heuristic models, end quote. Uh, talk to our listeners a little bit about what a heuristic is and what heuristic models do in historical and in biblical studies work. Thanks. Okay. Uh, so uh, the term heuristic comes from the Greek word heurisko, which means to find, to find or to discover. Uh, and a heuristic model, and here the models that I'm using are uh, these uh, face-to-face groups in antiquity, they help us think productively about uh, early Christian groups. So knowing about associations uh, doesn't actually create any new knowledge directly about uh, about early Christian groups. The only thing that would create new knowledge is if we had more discoveries. But they do two other things. First off, they create a kind of range of possibilities um, for us thinking about groups. That is, the kinds of things that were possible, the kinds of things that are attested and likely. So it allows us to situate early Christian practices within a spectrum. And the second thing that it does is it, is it often lets us see new possibilities that hadn't occurred to us. And the, the, the illustration that I used at the, at the beginning of the book uh, came from the area of paleontology. When, when the skeleton of the first T-Rex, Sue, was discovered, and it's now at the University of Chicago, uh, it was... Uh, it was wondered whether that enormous tail that T-Rex had uh, was basically a kind of counterweight to its rather enormous head. That is, in order to balance the enormous head, you needed an enormous counterweight. Um, but what the tail was for was, was a little bit puzzling. And it wasn't until uh, paleontologists looked at other species, especially the American crocodile, that they noticed that T-Rex and the American crocodile had what's called an insertion scar on its uh, femur. That's the place where a tendon connects to a bone, connects to a muscle. And noticing that about the American crocodile and the fact that T-Rex had one of these things too, uh, let them understand that the tail of T-Rex as the tail of the crocodile has a big muscle in it that a, that that pulls the, the, the hind legs back. So that's an example of a heuristic use of comparison where, of course, we don't have any more direct evidence of T-Rex because the, 
the muscles are gone, the soft tissues are gone, the nerves are gone. But um, the heuristic use of comparison with an American crocodile and other kinds of uh, animals that have similar sort of hip structures lets you at least come up with a very plausible hypothesis that T-Rex's tail was for locomotion. Now, I apply that kind of that model to early Christianity. Looking at uh, other comparable social groups uh, allows us to notice in the data that we've got um, possibilities that might actually have escaped our attention uh, if we weren't looking at comparative data. So that's what a, a heuristic is something that allows us to find possibilities to find uh, interpretive possibilities in the data that we have. Very good. Now that we've got that term on the table, I want to move to some of the less useful heuristics that this book is seeking to replace. And the chief among those is the notion that early Christ communities were religious in the modern sense. So what about ancient associations and Christ associations among them make them different from religious gatherings as we tend to think of religious gatherings in the 21st century? The, the term religion, uh, as it's applied to the ancient world, is, is actually a very problematic term. Um, the, in, in languages like Greek and Latin and Hebrew and other ancient languages, there actually isn't a word for, that maps onto our word religion. And so it would actually be impossible, say, in ancient Greece or ancient Israel or, in, or ancient Italy to say, what religion are you? You didn't have the linguistic equipment to actually <coughs> ask that question. Uh, the, the term religio in Latin, which is, which is semantically related to our word religion, in fact, doesn't, work, doesn't mean religion at all. It means a rite a ritual, a practice. And the opposite of uh, religio in Latin is not secularism, as it is in our day. It's rather superstitio. That is the excessive or uh, uh, incorrect uh, use of a ritual. Um, so the uh, my point here is that the term religion is the is a kind of misleading term if we try to apply it to antiquity. And it's misleading in two ways. Our, our term religion is both too broad uh, to compass uh, uh, ancient cultic practices, and it's too narrow. It's too broad in the sense that our word religion always includes not only practices, but especially creeds and beliefs. Uh, and a whole package of moral uh, behaviors and so forth. Well, religio in antiquity had almost nothing to do with creeds or beliefs. It had to do with something you did. You sacrificed, uh, you put some incense in an altar, or you sacrificed an animal to the gods, and that kept the gods happy. Um, it didn't involve uh, a whole set of uh, defined moral practices, and it didn't, it didn't have creeds uh, attached to it. Uh, so our word religion <clears throat> contains too much to map easily onto ma antiquity. And on the other hand, our word religion is too small um, because in, in antiquity, uh, Roman and Greek and Israelite antiquity, uh, 
The gods were imagined to be interested not just in what we would call religious practices, but they were interested in the marketplace. So they were interested in what happens in your home. They were interested in war. They were interested uh, in many, many activities. In fact, I think you could say that the gods were interested in everything that pertained to humans. Uh, whereas we tend to divide our culture into discrete packages. There's the economy, there's aesthetics, there's athletics, there's going to church, religion. Um, there are other things, and these are kind of separate aspects of culture. Well, that, that sort of separation um, was not something that an ancient person uh, would imagine. Um, and that's what's problematic with our word religion. If we try to push that export that onto the antiquity, it, it's not the right shape to fit uh, what uh, ancient people were doing. And for that reason, I avoid the term religion or religious in the entire book. I talk about cultic associations, that is, associations that uh, are, devoted to, are, are devoted to a particular deity. That doesn't mean that they weren't doing other things, but it means that among us, it means that they that they may have been formulated around the cult of a deity rather than, let's say, a particular occupation. Right, and you know, because I spend so much of my time professionally teaching literary texts, this is a helpful distinction because when you read someone like Plato or someone like Ovid, they certainly make radical departures in the propositional statements that you can make about the gods. But within this rubric, they wouldn't be non-religious. They would simply be uh, philosophical in a different way. Is that, is that a fair distinction yeah, to make? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and often, I think one of the problems of uh, modern scholarship when we look at antiquity, say, philosophers, is that uh, we tend to think that they're philosophers in the way that we might be philosophers and don't notice that they've got religious, they've got economic, they've got all sorts of other attitudes, too, to that they would understand as part of uh, the package of what it is to be uh, intellectual in antiquity, uh, whereas we tend to sort of ignore those bits uh, of them. Uh, uh, the, the ancient term philosophia, from which our word philosophy comes, it certainly had to do with intellectual propositions and arguing about uh, 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 making arguments and so forth, but Philosophia was also a way of life. Uh, it was a way of being in the world, and it had uh, it had uh, certain kinds of moral attitudes connected to it. And uh, philosophia, like the Epicureans, in one sense, looked a lot more like a religious group than a philosophical group. Um, so that, that's why the, these modern terms they have to be used very carefully because sometimes they they don't really map onto. Uh, the ancient world very well, or they block us from seeing aspects of the ancient world. Very good. Well, I want to start uh, turning to the particular practices of these associations in the ancient world. And one point of entry that I think might be interesting is patronage. This is something that a lot of us learned in an ancient history class at some point in high school or college, this idea that uh, patrons provided funding and prestige to clients who in turn, you know, uh, increase the sort of public standing of patrons. You lay out a little bit more complex picture, and, and you call it a patronage pyramid. So talk to our listeners a little bit about how this patronage pyramid stood to benefit the people of ancient cities that are below the elite classes 
And how does that pyramid network differ from our modern notions of economic class? Yeah, that's a really important uh, concept for thinking about the ancient world. In the 21st century, we imagine society to be divided in kind of in horizontal layers, uh, economic classes uh, indexed mostly to income uh, and to a lesser extent to types and degrees of education. Uh, uh, and it's also often imagined for us that uh, people of different uh, of various income brackets have common interests. So there's a middle class interest. There's a, a upper middle class interest. There's an elite class interest. And politicians often sort of skew their discourse to one of these horizontal layers. Uh, that's not really the way in which ancient society was organized. It's better, I think, to think of ancient society as a bunch of pyramids, where at the top, as you said, you would have a, uh, an elite patron, a senator, uh, a, an imperial woman, uh, uh, some wealthy person. And connected to that wealthy person uh, and powerful person are all sorts of uh, clients and uh, dependents that, that, uh, that are below him or her. Uh, first, their family, uh, sets of friends, uh, sets of people who are dependent on that household, um, uh, and uh, supporters, slaves, and former slaves, um, uh, sort of constituting, uh, uh, as you go down, larger and larger bunches of people. And these pyramids were uh, often in in conflict with one another and uh, are sometimes cooperating with one another. When you read uh, Roman historians like Suetonius or Tacitus, you see that there's a whole bunch of Roman families, each of which has uh, a large number of clients underneath them uh, in uh, a kind of dialogue, sometimes a kind of conflict with one another. Um, uh, so rather than, uh, rather than imagining kind of horizontal layers that uh, uh, analyzing society by horizontal layers, I think it's probably better to think in these large uh, sorts of pyramids, the imperial family, which was an enormous pyramid with the emperor on the top, and then all sorts of people underneath uh, him, uh, and other kinds of uh, pyramids in the ancient world. Um, you know, one of the examples that I often uh, give to my students, because they've seen the movie, is The Godfather. You know, if you look at, especially in Godfather 1, uh, you see the kind of pyramid that Don Corleone uh, in Sicily um, uh, controls. He and his immediate family are at the top of this, but uh, it reaches out to the soldiers in his uh, in his group, uh, but also bakers and merchants and so forth who are part of this influence, uh, this group of uh, over which he has influence, and uh, they are obliged to him, and he provides them with certain kinds of benefits. They're criminal benefits, but. Uh, Structurally, it's it's the same kind of uh, the same kind of social organization. So it has very little to do with economic levels. You can't sort of uh, analyze Sicilian society at that point into discrete economic levels. What you've got is a bunch of families uh, uh, that uh, uh, powerful people who control you know significant sectors of the population through patronage and. Uh, uh, and, and 
patron and client is. And I've got a follow-up, and, and listeners, I did not prepare Dr. Kloppenborg for this, so if, if you're not prepared to answer it, that's all right. But what occurs to me hearing you describe that uh, is in uh, Plato's Dialogue the Republic, uh, when he proposes the elimination of discrete families among the guardian class, it seems like on some level he's also eliminating this pyramid system and replacing yes. it with sort of single family ruling the city. Is that is that a background that would help us make a little bit more sense of that passage of the Republic as well? Yes, I think so. And you know, Plato as a political thinker, a political theorist, is is keenly interested in the organization of society, and he, of course, understands some of the the uh, detrimental aspects of these large patronage pyramids and co- and tries to come up with uh, with with another model there's also a struggle in the republic between um, democracy which in plato's language is actually a negative term in fact the term democratia the the rule of the people was sort of looked down upon by people like plato and socrates because that seemed to be not an appropriate political model. Uh, Plato is trying to insert his own political model, and it involves both avoiding real democracy, as it had, uh, uh, as it had evolved under Pericles and so forth, but uh, but also the the control of these large families. Um, so he's trying to find a kind of a middle way between uh, two options that he doesn't like. Very good. Well, to turn from Plato to the synagogue, one particular class of associations I found fascinating in this book were the diasporic ethnic associations, and they're usually linked with cultic practices with origins beyond the immediate geographic area. What were some of these ethnic communities, and to what extent would people in the Roman Empire have seen the Jewish synagogue as simply one instance among many of these ethnic communities, and to what extent would the Jewish synagogue have been particular among them I'm not sure that the Jewish the synagogue groups would have been uh, particular um, they would I think they would be one of many kinds of uh, diaspora groups and we know of quite a few of them uh, so in Athens for example already from about the fifth century BCE on there are uh, a large number of Thracians uh, who have connected with uh, with Athens part of a political alliance, but they uh, they come to Athens and they live either in Athens itself or in the adjoining port city of the Piraeus, and they bring with them the uh, the cult of one of their deities, Bendis, a female deity, sometimes connected with healing, uh, and uh, she typically wears this Phrygian cap uh, on her head. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, at, at the beginning of the Republic, in fact, you mentioned Plato, um, Socrates begins by saying, we went down to the Piraeus uh, today and we saw this torch race uh, that is conducted by the Thracians. They go from the city uh, uh, on horseback and, and on foot carrying torches and they go down to their temple uh, in the uh, in the Piraeus, and people in Athens come and watch this. It's a kind of uh, you know, it's a it's a sort of a tourist attraction. So the the Thracians and the cult of Bendis is is one of the diasporic groups. Uh, Judeans, that is, people who have come from Palestine, bring with them the worship of their god. We've got many other kinds of diasporic groups. We know from the fourth century on that there are Egyptians in 
Athens, uh, and they bring with them the cult of Isis. Uh, and uh, shortly thereafter, there are Phoenicians that come, Phoenician traders, and they bring with them uh, the cult of probably Astarte. She's called the Syrian Aphrodite, um, connected with uh, love and fertility. Uh, but we're probably talking here about uh, the goddess Astarte. A little later, Serapis, an Egyptian deity, starts uh, to make his appearance in, in, the, uh, uh, in the Greek regions, and eventually uh, they all get to Rome as well. So the ancient city uh, was filled, especially port cities, would have been filled with these various diasporic groups of uh, people from Anatolia, from Thrace, from Egypt, from Syria, Palestine, uh, Phoenicia, and so forth, each with, uh, with their own uh, deities, uh, uh, much in the way that multicultural cities now in North America and in Europe are, are also filled with, uh, with uh, you know, people from the People's Republic of China, from Iran, from uh, other places, each with their particular religious practices. So in other words, I mean, the, the much-cited practice of St. Paul to begin with the synagogue in a given city would have been something akin to starting in Chinatown. Yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, uh, Acts' view of Paul, which is um, a reasonable view, that is, Acts understands that Paul is Jewish, and so Acts imagines that as Paul moves through uh, Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece, he first connects with a synagogue. If you if you think uh, uh, of how you might move uh, to a city that you did not know uh, and make connections, you of course, uh, you know, both of us as university types are probably going to connect with a university. Uh, if you happen to be an artisan, uh, a pipe fitter, or a welder, or something like that, you're going to seek out uh, similar groups. Uh, if you happen to have religious affiliations, you're a Jew, uh, or you're a Baptist, or something like that, you're going to, uh, that's how you're going to move through the world by connecting with persons that you believe share uh, common interests or common uh, skills. Uh, so Acts imagination of how Paul moves is a perfectly reasonable one. In fact, it doesn't actually fit the data from Paul himself. Uh, Paul doesn't think of himself as a, as a, uh, as having a mission to the Jews. He's very clear that he has a mission to the Gentiles. Right, uh, echoing Jeremiah, I assume. Yeah, that's exactly. And uh, so I think that a good case can be made that he probably connected through artisan networks. If he was an artisan, a uh, uh, a skeno poyos, which might mean tent maker or awning maker or something like that, then he's more likely to connect through um, trade groups. Um, he comes into town and he knows that he can find out very quickly where the artisans are and makes a connection through them. Very good. Well, I want to turn to architecture because that was a, a segment of this book that you know taught me you know some really interesting new things. Um, I've always found the, the Gospel of John's master of the triple couch, and I forget the Greek term, I'm sure you remember it, a fascinating yeah. character. Were those triple couch reclining suppers one dining arrangement among many? Were they a norm from which other spaces deviated? Or is some other kind of eating space in the ancient Mediterranean more normal than that? I think it's fair to say that the triclinium, that is this three-couch three arrangement, in a, in a kind of U-form, 
uh, formation was probably the commonest way of uh, arranging eating. And we've got many, many uh, archae- uh, uh, archaeological sites where you can f- still see triclinia. If you go through Pompeii uh, or Ostia and many other sites in, in, uh, in Italy, uh, but also in North Africa, um, you can see still the remains of these three benched rooms. Um, those weren't the only uh, dining arrangements. Another one is called a stibadium, uh, which is a, um, a semicircular table. And we have a couple of those at Ostia. And we've got a number of paintings uh, from the ancient world, frescoes and, uh, and mosaics, that show this semicircular table with people cir- uh, uh, circled around them. Uh, these are called either a stibadium or sometimes just called a sigma, that is, uh, a C-shaped uh, uh, arrangement. Um, those are probably the most common. Uh, our own uh, uh, imagination or visualization of, say, the Last Supper or this, you know, the story in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, is a little bit contaminated by uh, the way in which we view Renaissance um, uh, imagination of the Last Supper. The Da Vinci uh, Last Supper, of course, is they're all along one side of a long table. Well, as far as we know, that's not the way in which people ate in antiquity. They ate on these U-shaped uh, triclinia. Uh, if you look at art a little bit before the Renaissance, you, you see a few examples of these uh, semicircular shaped tables. And uh, I'm told that there's even a few Renaissance uh, images of a triclinium, the, the three couched ar- ar- arrangements. But I think we, you know, if we think about the Last Supper or if we think about the story in the Gospel of John, uh, we probably ought to imagine uh, a triclinium, these three benched uh, tables. Uh, in the book, I've got uh, a couple of pictures of triclinia. Um, and uh, at, at least one picture of a biclinia, that is a two-benched uh, dining arrangement where the, the diners face each other on two parallel benches. Very good, very good. I want to stick with architecture for just a moment because one investigation that also drew my attention uh, is St. Paul's concern that people might enter the assembly space find people speaking in strange tongues and find them mad rather than holy. So in what kinds of gathering spaces might such encounters have happened? Yeah, this was, uh, this was a real discovery for me as I, as I worked through the book. Uh, the, you know, the, the in 1 Corinthians 14, as you say, you have, you have this scenario where an outsider, a non-believer enters a group. Uh, and hears them speaking in tongues and is puzzled by 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 what he hears. And so I started to wonder my, to myself, what kind of physical arrangement are we talking about? Up to now, in scholarship, there's been a very strong um, belief that Christians met exclusively in houses. Uh, that, and especially until uh, Edward Adams and David Balch have both produced uh, books in the last ten years raising serious questions about whether that was the case. Um, I started looking at the places in which these small associations met, and I realized they meet in all different, all, all sorts of different places. 
uh, not exclusively houses. Uh, so uh, there was three other kinds of locations that I looked at. Um, one of them is just in a workshop. Uh, and we've got lots and lots of examples of workshops in, in places like Ostia and, uh, and Pompeii. And they tend to be located right on major thoroughfares within uh, a few feet of the main road. Some of those workshops have clearly been adapted to cultic use by installing altars and things like that in them. A second place where we know groups met uh, would be in these uh, what are called insula complexes. If you if you go to uh, Pompeii now or if you go to Ostia, you'll see that uh, many a large portion of the population would have lived in uh, five, six-story apartment buildings. The first story was devoted mostly to shops, but the sort of second to fourth or second to fifth story uh, tenement kind of uh, apartment buildings, which were easily accessible by from the street. Uh, and the third places that we know that groups met, including Christian groups, is in cemeteries. Uh, now, each of those locations is very accessible from the street. So if you think uh, walking down the street past a workshop and people are either singing uh, or making some kind of noise, within two or three steps, you can be inside of that space um, uh, uh, observing what's going on. Similarly, with an insula, uh, if you look at the insulae complexes in Ostia, uh, the workshops are easily avail- uh, accessible from the street, but there's also staircases uh, that are publicly accessible that will take you up to the second, third, fourth, fifth floor, and you can uh, uh, you can get up to those rooms very quickly. And because construction in the ancient world is out of stone, which doesn't absorb sound very well, if people are on the second floor singing, anybody on the street can hear what they're doing. Uh, and and similarly. With uh, cemeteries, I've got a, a picture of uh, some cemetery locations uh, at a place called the Asola Sacra, just outside of Rome. Uh, and uh, the, the cemetery is, uh, is only a few feet from the Via Severiana, which is a main thoroughfare that leads from Ostia to Cherichina. Any person walking along the road is only... Uh, a few meters away from uh, a, a gathering that's happening uh, in one of these cemetery locations, Christians singing uh, or speaking in tongues or something like that. So that seemed to me a much easier uh, scenario to imagine how a non-believer could hear Christians uh, speaking in tongues or singing hymns and within a few steps being uh, in their midst. The problem with the notion of entering a house is when we understand how uh, a, especially a Roman house was built uh, to get to the place where the triclinium is, you would have to pass through a number of other rooms. And uh, whereas we think of our houses as private space, uh, as soon as someone enters the front door, they have entered private space. That's not the way in which a Roman house was constructed. The first, the front half of the house was public space in, into which people could go. Um, and as you moved backward in the house, back in the house, you were 
uh, going into increasingly private space. That's where the dining room is. That's where the bedroom is. And that's where the garden is. Um, so to imagine that the 1 Corinthians 14 visitor has penetrated all the way into the private area of a house is for me a little bit harder to imagine than that he's walking along the street past one of these uh, taberna, these workshops, and within a step or two, he's in there, uh, or in a cemetery, or in one of the insulae. Just the uh, those are much more easily accessible locations in an ancient city than a private uh, than than a house that you would you would have to go through multiple rooms to get uh, into where the Christians were likely meeting. Very good. This good. this of course is all this is all hypothetical. We don't have any exact description of where. Christians were meeting. And this is another example of kind of the heuristic use of data that is looking at housing, uh, uh, the way in which space was allocated in the ancient world gives us a number of possibilities. And then when we read a text like 1 Corinthians 14, then we say, well, which of these possible spaces uh, uh, are probable or at least, or likely as, uh, as a location? So, uh, that's that's actually a good example of uh, of of how you use data heuristically. Right, and just to point out something that you didn't emphasize, but I think our our listeners would do well to remember, uh, this is the the ancient and medieval urban economy in which the workshop would have been part of the house. The, yes. There's not really yeah. a sense of going to work in the morning and coming back from work in the evening. It it all would have been architecturally part of the same structure. Yes. Yes, exactly. In fact, you know, if you walk through Pompeii now, you will see that the workshops are actually the front part of large houses. So going to work is basically walking into the next room. Um, Very good. Well, these these associations in the ancient world had priests, uh, but it's interesting. I mean, your examination of the, of the priesthood, so to speak, you know, indicates that this tended to be a temporary elected office rather than a lifetime profession. Uh, and, uh, you know, among the range of scholars you engage with in this book, one of them, Edwin Judge, uh, makes the claim, or I think it makes the claim, correct me if I'm getting him wrong, that in uh, the Christ assemblies, uh, you know, they probably the uh, apostles probably resembled traveling sophists more than they resembled those temporarily elected uh, priests. So talk for a little bit about the connections between, you know, the priesthood in these ancient associations uh, and then the traveling orator, because I think that distinction was one that uh, could also shed some light on what's going on in some of these letters. Yes. Uh, Judge uh, Edwin Judge, uh, he's a historian of intellectual history, and he, he wondered whether the appeal of, Chris, of Christianity to the population uh, wasn't especially directed to the, the the very poor, but rather to the semi-educated and more socially mobile sector, some that had money, and especially those that prized reading and education, philosophy, uh, uh, and learning. Uh, second, he noted that uh, Christians did not have the regular kind of apparatus that was associated with cultic, uh, cultic practices. That is, Christians didn't have temples, they didn't have altars, uh, they didn't call their officials priests, uh, hiraeus, 
and uh, they didn't engage in sacrifice. Uh, and so he's got a wonderful line in uh, one of his publications where he said, no ancient person would ever have thought that Christians were a religion. He uses this problematic term religion. But his point is that almost nothing that Christians did looked like what happened in temples with priests and so forth. And so then he asked himself, well, what did they look like? Well, they were clearly interested in teaching, in learning. And Paul represents himself as someone who comes with a message, a kind of philosophy. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, he suggests that uh, Christian groups formed around the interest in learning, in teaching, in philosophy, in moral practices, uh, and, and so forth. And uh, one can, I think, supplement uh, uh, Judge's observation by saying, if, you, if we look at this, the second century, you see how, ver- how quickly Christian groups start to attract people who are trained philosophers, people like Justin Martyr, uh, or Heraklion, or... Uh, Clement of Alexandria at the end of the second century, Origen in the in the beginning of the uh, the third century, one of the most well educated persons in antiquity. And by the fifth century, you have people like Augustine, uh, who is a trained philosopher, a trained orator. Uh, so there's at least a kind of trajectory in early Christianity that's heading towards uh, a, a kind of scholastic practice, and he's got a. Uh, an interesting article called Early Christians as an Ancient Scholastic Community. Um, uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, uh, for Judge's view, and uh, it's something that I develop a little bit uh, towards the end of the book, where I point out that early Christians developed what I call bookish practices, uh, unlike many other cultic groups in antiquity, that is, Isis and, and Mithras, Serapis, um, Jupiter Dolichenus, these elective cults never really became book-oriented uh, cults. Uh, Christians did, and they, and they became book-oriented very, very quickly. And in that sense, they look uh, in some ways like the beginnings of a kind of ancient philosophical group. And they're perceived in that way as well uh, by some of their detractors, uh, uh, in the second century, Lucian of Samosata sort of sneers at Christians uh, for, uh, 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 you know, he says that these Christians uh, go to cobblers' houses and fuller's houses in order to learn philosophy. Well, you know, he's sneering at their pretensions of being a kind of uh, philosophical group, but uh, what he doesn't, what he he doesn't identify them as a kind of cultic group. Um, engaged in, you know, in sacrifice. He, he identifies them as a group that is, uh, is trying to pretend to be uh, philosophers or learners. And of course, you know, he, from, you know, a very learned pinnacle where he is, he, he's sneering at them. But it's interesting that he's observing this feature about them. And it resonates pretty nicely with the work of Pierre Adot, the uh, French historian of philosophy. Uh, mm-hmm. Because he he talks a great deal about the uh, practices, uh, especially of early monasticism, as having a kinship with the philosophical schools of the uh, Hellenistic period. So it's, yes. it's interesting that you know these uh, these streams of scholarship are informing each other pretty nicely here. 
Yeah, I mean, the Epicureans, we think of them as a philosophical group, but they're also a group that lives together uh, and uh, engages in not exactly a monastic practice, but at least a communal practice. And we've got other kinds of groups, Philo's Therapeutae, uh, that seems to be a kind of proto-monastic uh, uh, group that learns together and sings together and thinks uh, in philosophical terms together. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's. Uh, this is, again, I think, an example of the use of heuristic models. When you come to our data with a scholastic uh, model in mind, then you see aspects in early Christian groups that start to look like a kind of proto-philosophical group. Uh, if you come with a different model, then you also start to see things that fit with that model. Very good. One of the questions that this book uh, raises and then explores at some length is how those early Christ assemblies would have funded the common meals that are, you know, at the center of Paul's letters as well as a lot of the scenes in Acts. Um, talk for a moment about competing theories of how the early Christ assemblies would have paid for those meals and especially how those questions and the way that we answer them inform the way that we read 1 Corinthians 11. Yeah, the um, the a, a lot of scholarship uh, that has been done on one Corinthians eleven and other Christ, and other early Christian meals has operated, I think, to its detriment uh, in a kind of vacuum. It hasn't looked at the way in which other groups funded their meals, uh, and that has allowed a certain kind of what we might call magical thinking. That is, people starting starting to imagine all sorts of possibilities without ever asking, are these, are, are these possibilities that are attested anywhere? Are they likely? Uh, uh, do we have any evidence of anyone ever doing it this way? Um, so one of the common views uh, is that uh, early Christians attracted wealthy patrons who were prepared to pay for uh, all of their meals. So at least... Uh, monthly meetings, monthly meals, or weekly meals, 52 a year. That's quite a lot. Uh, when I began to work on this project, uh, I started to look at the way in which these other small groups funded their meals. And basically, almost every uh, uh, private association in the ancient world, whether it's a cultic association or a trade association or a diasporic group, they're held together by, by common meals, monthly uh, is frequently, sometimes more uh, more frequent more frequent than monthly, and that raises the question of how you pay for a meal. A meal costs money, and uh, what uh, I discovered is that there's essentially two models. One is monthly dues. Everybody pays a little bit of money uh, every month, and that allows the president or the secretary or the treasurer to buy sufficient food and wine uh, to fund the meal. Uh, I'd say that's probably the most common way of doing it. And it often doesn't cost very much, especially if you're having a modest meal of bread and vegetables and wine. Uh, but it does cost money, and someone has to pay for it. The other, the other model that's very common is what I would call a liturgical model, where uh, three or four members of the group, and we're usually talking about groups of only 15 to 30 members, so three or four are deputed uh, for a year, say, 
to be responsible for all the meals of the group. And then the next year, another set of three or four uh, become responsible. So it's a kind of rotating uh, uh, obligation that I will have one year and then the next year you will have the, that that responsibility to uh, provide. Uh, I, would al- I should also say that it's important to realize that leadership in the ancient world was seldom paid. That is, you didn't get a salary for being a leader. And on the contrary, leaders were often expected to contribute more to the group than everybody else. So it might be that uh, the president of the group for one year was actually expected to provide all the wine uh, or uh, all the bread or all some other kind of commodity. And we've got examples of exactly that kind of thing happening. Uh, what turned out to be extremely unusual, as I looked at the data, is that patrons, I couldn't find uh, uh, any good examples of a patron being prepared to pay for all of the, the uh, meals of a group, uh, all of the monthly meals of a group, or uh, uh, at best you would find patrons who were prepared to pay for one meal a year, uh, or not even that, maybe just the flowers that, uh, that were used at the meal. Um, it turns out that patrons in antiquity were far less generous than, than some of our colleagues have thought they were. My work here was uh, uh, followed on a, a very, very important book by a, a Flemish scholar named Arjan Zyderhoek, who wrote a book beca- called uh, Elite uh, Munificence in the Roman Empire, where he did some mathematical analysis of uh, Benefaction of patronage uh, in Asia Minor, and and discovered that patrons actually, although they advertised their gifts very generously, they were not very generous at all in uh, how much money they gave. And so, when I read his book, I started to look at data about the patronage of private associations and found exactly the same thing. Patrons just didn't give very much. Uh, perhaps a meal. Uh, maybe two meals a year, but not more than that. And when I saw that, I realized this notion that Christians somehow or other had attracted patrons that were able to to pay for all meals, 12 meals a year or 52 meals a year, was really quite an unrealistic uh, uh, scenario. It just Patrons just were not that generous. And so that throwed me, threw me back on the two models that I propose, either uh, Christ groups had a structure of monthly fees, and it, they could be uh, variable, that is, uh, matched to whatever your your income was, uh, or uh, uh, leaders and others from time to time might be expected to take on the responsibility of providing the community meal for one year uh, or one month and then rotate off, and some other uh, members of the group uh, take responsibility for it. Our problem is that we've got actually no direct data on how Christians funded their meal. That they had meals is very clear. How they funded them uh, is not talked about by Paul at all. And so that leaves us, uh, I think, to use uh, comparative data heuristically to, uh, to propose a couple of possible scenarios and uh, and be content with what is probable as a scenario rather than the kind of uh, 
as I say, kind of magical thinking uh, possibilities that had been proposed in the past. Very good. Well, that that is, you know, one relationship between a larger community that, you know, turns out not to be sustainable. My own uh, theological education has highlighted the resident alien strain of biblical and early Christian thought about how the ecclesia relates to empire. Uh, you know, just to give some indication, I learned my philosophy from one of Stanley Hauerwas's doctoral hmm. students and then learned my theology in seminary from one of his classmates at Yale. Uh, but your book does well acknowledging that that strain, that resident alien strain, in early Christian writing uh, exists alongside uh, other ways that Christ assemblies participated in the life of the city. So talk to our listeners for a moment about how honor served as both a connection between ecclesia and the city and enforced that distinction that we read about in First Peter and Shepherd of Hermas and other such early texts. Yes, uh, this is what I what I approach in, in chapter 10, how early Christians related to the city and related to, uh, to the state. And what I wanted to do was to kind of complicate the picture that we have, that have we, we worked with. As you said, what you learned and what I learned uh, when I was in graduate school is that uh, Christians sort of programmatically distinguish themselves from the rest of uh, society and culture by... Right, citizens of heaven... Yeah, yeah, and we are resident aliens and we're sojourners and so forth. And that's true. You certainly find that vocabulary in Hebrews, in one, uh, in one Peter, uh, in Shepherd of Hermas and other documents. <clears throat> uh, but uh, the more I thought about it, I, uh, the more I realized if that was the dominant or, or even exclusive posture of early Christians, we would, end, you know, we would have ended up with Christians like modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses who do hive themselves off from society. They're really non-participators. But it's pretty, then, it's pretty hard then to imagine how, uh, how the Jesus movement would have flourished as it in fact did uh, in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century and how it eventually becomes a, a, a dominant uh, uh, religious practice in the ancient world. Um, and so my complication of the picture involved noticing also the way in which early Christians imitated uh, civic practices, especially practices as a, of being a benefactor. So one of the things that the Shepherd of Hermas argues uh, is that uh, there are wealthy people in the Shepherd's group, uh, and uh, he makes the argument that uh, it's not that they're to give up the practice of benefaction, which is a mechanism for achieving honor and standing in a community, but they should start, instead of buying fields and buildings and doing the kinds of things that civic benefactors might do, to benefit uh, members of their community. And he uses this interesting uh, analogy of, uh, of a particular kind of viticulture in the ancient world, which involved the growing of vines on trees, on elm trees. Uh, they didn't have the kinds of... Um, whatever you call them in modern vineyards, these uh, racks or uh, frames. Yeah, the white wire frames is how I think yeah, of them, yeah. They didn't have those. So one of the common methods for growing vines was to run them up a tree. So he uses the example of the elm tree that is covered by the grapes. And he says the the elm tree is are the rich people. They are non-productive. 
but they, uh, in the sense that they don't produce uh, wine, but they become the support for the vines that grow up the tree, uh, which represent the poorer people. And so his argument here is that the, the wealthy, who have all sorts of financial capability and strength, they should use that financial capability and strength to support the vines that are growing up the tree, that is, the poor people, and then you end up with a kind of nice uh, symbiotic uh, relationship so that the, that the poor pray for the rich. Uh, and, and praying in the ancient world is always vocal. You don't pray silently. You pray out loud, uh, which is to say that the, that the poor then are going to say, you know, uh, thanks be to God that Dionysius has supported me in this endeavor. So that that means that Dionysius or Serapion, or whoever the rich person is, uh, receives a kind of honor, uh, recognition as being a benefactor, and the poor person, the poor Christian in the group, uh, receives the benefits that she or he uh, requires. So uh, here the shepherd of Hermas is imitating uh, dominant civic practices where donors did things for their clients and they received praise, but he's bringing it in-house. He's bringing it within the within the Christian group. So the same kind of honor transaction is happening. That is, wealthy people are being recognized for their benefaction, uh, but it's benefacting the, uh, the poorer Christians. So there's Yes, they still cultivate this discourse of being outsiders and uh, and sojourners, but at the same time, they're imitating a lot of civic practices, uh, such that the author of 1 Peter says that uh, pagans will observe how Christians operate, how they do good, and ultimately will praise God on that account. Um, that is, the, the hope is, for the author of 1 Peter, is that Pagans will actually see, yeah, yeah, these are decent people. They take care of their own. They are doing the kinds of things that we recognize as common cultural practices. And for that reason, ultimately, we will uh, will respect them. Very good. Your chapter on recruitment for Christ Assemblies alone makes this book worth getting and reading. And it is a complex enough chapter. We're not going to have the whole picture in the time we have left. But say a few words about the workshop, we've already talked about it as a, a place for gathering. Talk about it as a site for recruitment in ancient guild associations and how Christ associations also might have been communities in which people entered through the workshop. Well, here my thinking is uh, is influenced a lot by one of the, the work of one of my students, uh, Richard Askoff, who worked on uh, 1 Thessalonians. And he made, I think, a very strong argument that the that the Thessalonian group that Paul comes into contact with are hand workers. It's interesting that in 1 Thessalonians, uh, this is a, a document where Paul uh, identifies himself as an artisan by saying, don't you remember that when I was with you, I worked with my hands day and night? And he encourages them to keep working with their hands. So that's a kind of, that's kind of, that's a kind of language that when one encounters in an ancient document, which which tells you that we're in a kind of trade uh, or artisanal uh, context, and uh, it's a it, it's a pretty short step from there to uh, imagine that as Paul enters Thessaloniki, which he hasn't visited before, 
how does he get connected with the people that he eventually got connected with? And I think the most plausible scenario there is that he uh, that he finds out where people of uh, of his trade uh, work. That was particularly easy in ancient cities, uh, which tended to be organized. Uh, uh, the streets are often organized by the trade on which they were practiced, uh, on which that trade was practiced. So uh, uh, you would have uh, streets, say the Fuller's Street or the uh, Leather Worker's Street or the Potter's Street. So Paul entering Thessaloniki uh, could have asked anybody, where are the skenopoioi, where are the awning makers or the tent makers? And within a couple of minutes, uh, he could find where they are. The analogy for us is, you know, if I drive to, you know, if you or any of your listeners drives to an American city uh, that they have not visited before, and if they cannot find a Starbucks or a home hardware uh, or a big box store, they're not an American. That is, <laughs> we have we have cultural knowledge about how to find things in cities that we haven't visited. Uh, and uh, similarly, an ancient person uh, can find exactly uh, where the law courts are. They're going to be right at the intersection of the two main streets of the town. They're going to be able to find where the where the potters are, where the fullers are, and so forth. So uh, if the Thessalonian group is a trade association, uh, perhaps connected with Paul's own trade, Paul can locate that, that, that group very quickly. And as I say, he's, he actually says in 1 Thessalonians that he spent some time working with his own hands with them, uh, providing a model. So I think uh, Askoff, I think, has provided an interesting... Uh, scenario for imagining how Paul connected with the Thessalonians. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's how he connected with everybody in every town that he went to. But for Thessaloniki, I think it works pretty well. Um, This hypothesis also goes back to a much earlier article uh, by Ronald Hawk called The Workshop as uh, as the Social Setting of Paul's Mission, published, I think, in the 70s, where he makes the same kind of argument that... um, uh, that reading one Thessalonians might invite the, the, the hypothesis that Paul uh, converted the group by sitting working with them as an artisan and bringing to them the, uh, the, uh, the belief in Christ um, and, and, and turning them from serving idols to serving the true and living God, as he says in, at the beginning of one, Corinth, uh, of one Thessalonians. <coughs> Very good. Well, John, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What would you like our listeners thinking about associations, practices of imagining historical realities, or anything else as we head for the door? Okay. Well, I guess one of the things that I that I learned in writing the book uh, has to do with how groups come together and how they stick together. The successful groups uh, have what we would call social capital to offer uh, their members. Uh, And social capital here means a strong sense of belonging, a strong sense of worth and privilege. And in the case of Christ groups, uh, they have the discourse of saying we have been chosen or elected or called by uh, by the God. Uh, They're not the only group that does this, but they're one of the ones that do that. Um, But 
groups that are successful that have a lot of kind of glue, as it were, social glue that hold themselves together, not only offer benefits to their members, but they make demands as well. And uh, up to now, we don't, we haven't thought so much about the demands that uh, that Christ groups uh, made on their members and how that actually enforced solidarity. Let me give the example of a modern example. If you're a golfer and you join an elite golf club, there's, of course, all sorts of benefits that flow to you from joining that club. There may be a club professional that can help you work on your swing or whatever. And there would be all sorts of other people in the group that lend to you social capital. Um, but belonging to an elite golf club or an elite tennis club or something like that <clears throat> also imposes demands on you. It, impo- it may impose monetary demands on you, but it also, be, it, it also imposes behavioral demands on you. So you have to conduct yourself in a certain way. And let's say if you're an elite golf, cl- uh, golf club, I, I'm, I'm actually a beginning golfer, so I'm talking way below my, my level of competence. But uh, uh, it, it, it imposes some performance demands on you. That is, I would have to be a golfer of a certain kind of level to stay in the club. And if I'm a poser, or if I'm a kind of freeloader, I'm not going to last in that club very long because the performance uh, demands that are imposed on me will say, will tell me, I really can't make it. Now, if we think about Christ groups, they probably didn't impose very high financial costs on members. Uh, as I say, they may have from time to time imposed a cost on you if you were responsible for, for pro- providing meals that year. But they they imposed behavioral costs on you. And you see this coming out in Paul's letters and other letters where, you know, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that uh, that Christians are to exhibit Philadelphia, which is fraternal affection. The punch of that word is missed by most of us because we, we think, well, we've got a, a city in the U.S. called Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? Philadelphia in the ancient world is a very rare commodity. It's the kind of extreme affection that happens between brothers. Uh, and it was hardly ever used to refer to affection that, belong, that, that exists between people who are not blood brothers. But Paul says that's the level of affection, that's the level of commitment and solidarity that being a Christian uh, expects of you. He's talking to people who are largely unrelated to one another, but imposes a term that is a, a very high, a demanding term. That's a cost um, that uh, that belonging to the group imposes on you. If you read Matthew's uh, parables, you'll see that Christians, Matthew's Christians, take took performance costs pretty seriously. That is, if you didn't if you didn't match up you were thrown into outer darkness and weeping and wailing and gnashing and teeth and so forth. So these were performance, behavioral demands were performance uh, requirements that were taken very seriously. Now, interestingly, an American uh, anthropologist named Richard Saucis has observed that groups that impose the highest, what he calls signaling costs, that is the behavioral costs that tells you and others that you're a member, Groups that impose the highest behavioral costs are the ones that have the longest longevity. And that's because 
if I belong to a group that enforces solidarity, that says I really do have to behave towards my fellows with fraternal affection, with um, care, uh, being interested in their welfare and devote myself to that, that generates a level of intergroup trust uh, that means that I know that all of my fellows are reliable. Uh, and uh, it's that kind of social glue that accounts for uh, the longevity of a group. If I can put it negatively, a group that doesn't, that doesn't impose any costs on me, I'll, I, uh, if there are no costs to joining, there's also no cost to leaving. If there are high costs to joining, then there are going to be high costs to leaving. Uh, and that's what the successful groups like uh, Christ groups and other groups that imposed high behavioral costs, uh, they, uh, they succeeded, I think, in part because of stringent uh, performance requirements. That might seem counterintuitive to us that uh, groups that required a lot of you, uh, why would you join? I mean, we live in a culture where getting things for free seems to be a, uh, a, a priority. But getting things for free when you're thinking about group solidarity and group longevity, that doesn't work at all. So that's one of the things that I, that I learned in doing the book, and I think it helps, it helps us think about uh, what groups in, in our world succeed and which fail and why they fail. Uh, those that group that, that generate a kind of internal social capital and in and create a network of trust uh, within their members are the ones that are going to hang around a long time. Very good. Well, John Kloppenborg, thank you for coming on Christian Humans Profiles. I've enjoyed this. Thanks very much for inviting me. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is Christ's Associations, Connecting and Belonging in the Ancient City from Yale University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.